Usually every message I preach, I picked it. The, the freedom of having Tim picked it for me is overwhelmingly glorious to me. But first of all, to all of the family, we're so thankful that you're here. We're thankful for the impact that you have had in him and never heard Tim say one negative word about anybody in his family. He loved all of you. He loves all of you. He still does. We're just separated by a little bit of space and time right now. But our prayer is that the Lord would be a comfort to you, that the Lord would use this time, and in particular that you would see God's hand of mercy as a family during this time, as Tim's departure, I know, brings home our own mortality as well. Now, Tim loved the Bible. He loved Bible preaching. He never tired of the truths of Scripture. He never tired of the notion of Christ. He never tired of the thought of his saving power. And so, according to Tim's desires, I would like to highlight the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He, he didn't want his memorial service to be all that much about him. We've probably done more than he would have been comfortable with already. The word gospel simply means good news. And we will get to the good news part in just a bit. But first, I want to just place one little thought in your head, and you almost might even picture this little thought as going in your hand like a little pebble, and you're just going to hold on to it for a little while. It's a tiny thought. It's an easy thought to remember. And here's the thought that's going to go into your hand, and you're just going to hold on to it for a while. You ready? The thought is death. We can even say that together. Death. It's all in your hand. Death is a tiny little word in biblical Greek which indicates a contrast. It's a little tiny conjunction that usually says something new, something different is about to be said. It's the language equivalent of the turn signal in your car. We're going in a different direction. Death. So now holding that little thought, death, in your hand like a pebble, hang on to that for a bit. I said that gospel simply means good news, but the good news doesn't make sense without the reality that precedes it. In fact is, is that the Bible paints a very gloomy picture of mankind. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve rebelled against God, and as a result, the curse of sin was brought into the world. God told Adam that as a result of his rebellion, in Genesis 3.19, he said, You are dust, and to dust you shall return that Adam was going to die, and subsequently every generation of humanity was going to die. Well, maybe the next generation would be better. Maybe things would improve. Adam's wife Eve gave birth to the first human being ever born from the womb of a woman, Cain. And Eve even had hope that perhaps Cain would bring relief from sin. She declared that with God's help, she had gotten a man, and there was hope that perhaps he was a savior of some sort. That Cain grew up to rebel against God as well, and ultimately he murdered his own brother, Abel, such that the very first man ever born on earth became the first murderer as well. And why is that? Because the curse of sin includes a sin nature, an impossible nature built into us in which no human 
can please God or be in fellowship with his holiness. And so even in that ancient time, maybe somebody might have asked this question. Well, maybe if more people are born in the world, we can all make it a better place. Well, more and more people were born to the world. People like Lamech in Genesis 4, who was a descendant of Cain, and Lamech boasted, he bragged, that when a young boy struck him, Lamech killed him on the spot. And he boasted of this. More and more people, more and more people, more and more people were born to the world. And in Genesis chapter 6, God gave this evaluation. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And someone might say, well, people grow up jaded and difficult and they, so they become sinful But children are still innocent. We still have the babies. We still have the children. Just two chapters in Genesis, two chapters later, God's evaluation of children comes. In Genesis 8, 21, the inclination of man's heart is evil from childhood. Psalm 58, verse 3 confirms this. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. If you've raised children, you know that 100% of them were liars. Every single one. They are little gamblers. And somebody might say, well, but there surely are some exceptions to that. There's been wonderful people in the world, haven't there? Haven't there been? Well, Israel's King Solomon said in 1 Kings 8, 46, quote, There is no one who does not sin against God. Psalm 14, beginning in verse 1, declares, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And right about now, humanity's saying, this doesn't look good. This looks bad. We've barely begun to open the Pandora's box of bad news in the Bible about mankind. Psalm 143, verse 2 says, no one living is righteous before God. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 3 says, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. And someone might say, and maybe you've said this, well, I've done a lot of good things. God will be pleased with me. He will receive me. And you might have even said, yep, heaven's going to be pretty happy to see me show up. I've done a lot of nice things. And yes, probably every single person in this room has done some good things. But you're making a faulty assumption that somehow good things erase sin. Bible never says that. In fact, the Bible punches us in the gut with this truth. Ecclesiastes 7.20, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So yeah, you've done some good things, but you've also sinned, and the good does not make up for the bad. But my good works, you might say, I've done lots of good things, and God's going to be pleased with that. 
Well, Isaiah 64, 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy rag before God, a piece of trash. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 13, God says, I hate your good deeds. That's a little confusing to us. Why does God hate our good deeds? Because arrogant humanity thinks that somehow they can make God happy with external goodness while maintaining an unchanged, wicked heart. Now, someone might start getting nervous and asking the question, all right, just how good is good? I mean, maybe I'm close. Maybe it's like a batting average and I'm batting 280. If I can just get up to 300, then we're good. What's the standard? James 2.10 says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails once is guilty of all of it. And to make matters worse, Jesus said in Matthew 5 that your very thoughts count as sin because they reveal your wicked heart. Jesus even said that if you have a hateful thought towards someone in heaven, you are guilty of murder. And someone might say, okay, well, then I just need to fix my heart. That will make God pleased with me. Guess what? It's your deceitful heart telling you that you can fix your own heart. It's like the old joke that someone says, my brain is the most important organ in the body. But wait a minute, look what's telling me that. (laughs) Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Every justification you make to say God will be pleased with me is a lie coming from your own heart and mind. Here's God's evaluation of humanity from the New Testament. Romans 1, beginning in verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, And quoting Psalm 14, Romans 3 says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of snakes is in their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. What does that mean? It means you will not have that fantasy idea of being able to stand before God and list all the good things you've ever done. He won't even let you speak. That's not me. That's what the Bible says. And the problem is, is that we can't say, well, I'll just obey God and be good. It's too late. God's law is only served to prove that you can't do it. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In other words, even if you tried to obey the Bible, all it would do is prove that you can't. And in fact, the spiritual sinful depravity of mankind is so pervasive, so complete, so absolute, that mankind is spiritually dead, unable to grasp or comprehend spiritual truth from God. It's impossible. 
1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. I want to land this horrible mess of bad news that we've kind of flown up here with on one text in the New Testament that just puts the capper on the bad news. It just seals the case against humanity. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says that mankind is dead in his trespasses and sins. The first pastor that ever discipled me gave a Greek lesson. He said the Greek word for dead means dead. Ephesians 2 verse 2 says that mankind is followed after Satan and after his ways. Ephesians 2 verse 3 says that you are debased, you follow after your selfish sinful desire of your body and your mind. The same verse says that you are children of wrath and that every single human being who has ever lived is under the wrath of God. Every single one. And so we share the same fate as Adam. We will die. We cannot please God. We cannot make ourselves spiritually alive. We cannot keep his holy law. We cannot do good things to win God's favor because we can't stop sinning. We cannot stop the fact that going all the way back to Genesis 6, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Let me put it this way. If you've ever told a lie, you're a liar for all eternity because you can't undo it. If you've ever stolen one thing, you're a thief for all eternity because you can't undo it. If you ever looked at a woman with lust for her, you are a sexually immoral man for all eternity because you can't undo it. And according to Jesus Christ, if you've ever had one hateful thought toward any other human being, you are a murderer for all eternity because you cannot undo sin. You can't. There are no good works that can undo sin. In fact, the book of Revelation says that the sins of just one person fills up books and books and books in heaven. Someone might say, well, I'm going to outsmart God. Or maybe you'll do some wonderful thing that will impress God. Or worse, perhaps you think that God will accept you just because you're special. See also Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart is deceitful. The Bible records God's answer to those deluded thoughts. He records, the Bible records the answer to any who would think they would outsmart God. Psalm 2, verse 4 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. And the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. God is just. He is righteous. And in his perfect righteousness, sin must be punished. Otherwise, he wouldn't be righteous. He would be an unrighteous judge if he did any less. And your guilt and my guilt is stacked on the evidence table in the, in the courtroom. It's overwhelming the evidence table. And we're doomed. We deserve the wrath of God because you know and I know. You know in your heart, I know in my heart. That you're a sinner, you're a liar, you're a cheat, you're a murderer by God's standards. And if someone says, I'm not like that, that just proves, Ecclesiastes 9, true, that madness is in their heart while they live. To save yourself is utterly hopeless. It's a fool's errand. It's impossible. 
And whether you believe in the coming judgment of God is irrelevant. What you believe has nothing to do with this. If you don't believe the sun is going to rise tomorrow, the sun doesn't care what you believe. It's still coming up. In your hand is one little thought. Death. The little word that changes everything. Death. Often translated in English as a contrasting conjunction, but remember, Ephesians 2, 1 says that mankind is dead in his trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2, verse 2 says that mankind is followed after Satan and after his ways. Ephesians 2, verse 3 says that we're debased and we follow after our selfish, sinful desires of our body and our minds. The very same verse says that we're children of wrath. Every single human being has ever lived. Then Ephesians 2, 4, death, but God. Ephesians 2, 4 says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. In other words, God is perfectly just and he must punish sin. And so he did. He sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came from heaven to bear the penalty for the sins of all who would believe on him and repent. Why? God is rich in mercy. He has a great love. And what does he do with this love? You remember the spiritual deadness that is the fate of all humanity? Ephesians 2 verse 5 says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. That by God's grace and power you might exercise saving faith in Christ The same chapter in verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You see that without Christ, there's no hope, and you'll be left in the deadness and in the rebellion of your sinful soul. You will die, and you'll be judged by God. But in Christ, who was raised from the dead, we're promised to be where he is. In verse 6, He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And not only will we be where he is, but we receive treasures from his hand forevermore. Verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The death is the work of God to change the heart of a person who's dead in his trespasses and sins and to make him alive. Jesus said it this way in Mark 1.15, Repent and believe in the gospel, and God will give you a new heart. And listen carefully. God will view you as if you are as righteous as Jesus Christ himself. How is that even possible? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Can you imagine that? The one that Genesis 6.5 says, Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, has now become in the eyes of God as pure as Christ himself. Someone might say, I've been around for a long time, and it's hopeless for me. I've been proud 
I've rebelled against God, and even as I hear you speaking, I'm listing all the sins in my mind, and I know that I've filled up books in heaven. I've done too much. Ancient Israel had a rotten king once, and that king's name was Manasseh. His father, Hezekiah, had rightly banned pagan worship practices in Israel. Manasseh brought them all back. That's what happens when you make a guy king when he's 12. For five decades, he was a horrific example of wickedness. He built altars to false pagan gods. He built pagan altars in the very temple of God itself. He used fortune tellers and necromancers, and he dealt in the world of dark demonic magic. He burned his own son alive as an offering to a pagan god, a screaming, begging sacrifice of a little boy. He had the prophet Isaiah sawn in half alive because he was tired of hearing Isaiah preach, repent. His wickedness is so great that God places blame on Manasseh for his entire judgment on the entire nation of Israel. Jeremiah 15.4 says, I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth because of what Manasseh did. So what would happen to Manasseh? Death. But God. Second Chronicles 33 records that God arranged for Manasseh to be captured by the Assyrians. He was brought bound in chains to the city of Babylon. Verses 12 and 13 say, And when he was in distress, he entreated the grace of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Manasseh was a changed man. He came back to Jerusalem and he cleaned up everything he had messed up. He reinstituted the worship of the one true living God. Could I say this to you? If it wasn't too late for Manasseh, it's not too late for anyone. Tim was born under this curse of sin, just like every one of you. But he came to know that his heart was wicked. He knew that he was cursed before God. He knew that he was guilty before the Almighty but God. Because of God's work, he is enjoying his Savior right now. And by the way, there's no other way to tell you this. If you miss Tim, there's only, only one way you will ever see him again, but God. How will you see him again? Romans 10, 9 and 10 tells you how if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. At some point in his life, Tim's eyes were graciously opened by the Spirit of God, and yours can be as well. You don't have to miss him forever. Do you understand that? You don't have to. But even better than being reunited with Tim is to be united with Christ. That's what Tim would want. It's very rare to get to preach a message for a man who is such a gentle soul. All of you knew that about him. 
And from a human standpoint, it would grieve his heart deeply if one of you didn't make it. So let's all make it. How about that? Death. But God. Let's pray. Our Father, your grace is astounding. It's shocking. We who are evil from our first thoughts on this earth, we who have rebelled against our parents from the moment we could speak and walk, we who, for most of us, the first word we learned was no. The first full sentence we said was probably a lie. We who have thought murderous thoughts about countless tens, dozens, hundreds of people. We who have been adulterous in our minds. We who have told lie after lie after lie. We are so far gone that we're spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. We couldn't find our way to God on our own, if, even if we wanted to. But according to scripture, we didn't even want to. We're not a, a man drowning in the, in the sea hoping for a life preserver. We're a man drowning in the sea mad that somebody's throwing a life preserver at us. But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. And so I join all the believers in Christ here this day in praying that not a single person in this room or hearing this message would miss the gospel and miss out on becoming the child of the living God. I know that would have been Tim's prayer, certainly his desire. We ask you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. And we pray in Christ's name, amen.